Many of us assume that new information will naturally lead to new action, but most of the time, it doesn't. On this episode, BJ Fogg tells us what the science says about actually changing our behavior. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 507. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. You've heard me talk many times over the years about the importance of leadership development and leaders leading themselves first well. And of course, a big part of leadership development is behavior change. Yes, as leaders, we are working to inspire and to influence the behavior of others. First and foremost, though, it's really about making shifts in our own behavior. Today, I am really glad to be able to welcome someone who absolutely is a leading expert in the world on behavior change. It's going to help us to really uncover some of the key things based on research that we can do to most effectively change our behavior. I'm so glad to welcome to the show today, BJ Fogg. He is a behavior scientist with a deep experience in innovation and teaching. He's directed a research lab at Stanford University for over 20 years. He trains innovators to create solutions that influence behavior for good in the areas of health, sustainability, financial well-being, learning, productivity, and much more. He's an expert in behavior change, from habit formation to company culture change. Fortune Magazine named him a new guru you should know for his insights about mobile and social networks. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Tiny Habits, the small changes that change everything. BJ, so glad to meet you. Dave, thank you for inviting me. Well, the pleasure is mine. I have been hearing about your work now for several years, so I'm so excited to be able to have this conversation with you. And when I think about behavior change, one of the things I know that's come up in your work is looking at what organizations and many of the leaders in training development have done over the years around creating products and programs around behavior mm-hmm. change. And there are a lot of these that you find that are kind of set up for failure or setting people up mm. for failure. And, and I know it's not done intentionally. Intentions are really good most of the time. But I am curious, what is it you see in some of the programs out there that set people up for failure? Yeah, there's some really common mistakes of things that don't work very well. One is to just give people an abstract outcome or aspiration and then try to motivate them towards that. So let's say, for example, as a company, it's like, oh, we need to communicate better. That's not a specific behavior. That's an aspiration. That's something abstract. And you might try to motivate people to communicate better. Like you might trot out research of why it's important to communicate better, or you may point to the problems with not communicating better. But that combo of here's this abstract thing and we're going to motivate you toward this abstract thing does not work very well. It just mostly frustrates people. Yes, they may want to communicate better, but they don't know specifically what to do or how to do it. Uh, Interesting. What would be a better way to go about it versus just that kind of communicate better general message? Yeah. So in my work on behavior design, what you do is you start with that outcome or aspiration, and then you figure out what behaviors, what specific behaviors will result in that aspiration outcome. So one is figuring out what are the right specific behaviors. And in my work, I call those golden behaviors. 
And then you make those very easy to do for the people that you're working with. So notice it's almost the opposite of motivate towards an abstraction. In this case, you're making it easy to do a specific behavior. And that just changes the game right there. Be very clear about what the behavior is and then make it easy to do. Ah, okay. All right. I want to dive in on that because I think that's a really key point in your work. I'm also curious about something that I noticed in your work that I think is also a mistake a lot of us fall into, that information does not necessarily <laughs> lead to action. Oh, my God. Yeah. Tell, tell me more about that. Oh, you know, you see this everywhere. And once I call it out, it's going to be pretty clear next time you see it. I call it the information action fallacy. And the, the wrongheaded thinking goes like this. Oh, we want to change behavior. So we first provide information in order to change somebody's attitude or opinion. So that's the first link. We're going to give information and that's going to change their attitude or opinion. And then once their attitude or opinion changes, then their behavior will change. Okay, so there's two links here. One is information leads to change in attitudes, opinions, or beliefs. And then that then cascades down to behavior change. That does not work very well. In fact, it almost never works. And that's why I gave it a name. I call it the information action fallacy. And you know you're stuck in that a way of thinking if it's like, oh, we just need to educate or we just need to raise awareness or we just need an information campaign. Those are all signals. Those are all red flags that you are assuming that you can change somebody's attitude, which will then lead to behavior change. And those links are not very reliable. They're not very robust. There's rare occasions where it does work, but for the most part, it does not. Information alone does not reliably change people's behavior. Yeah. It makes logical sense. But what we're dealing here is the psychological, which is different than logical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of the psychology, one of the other things that I think a lot of us have heard over the years, and I don't even know where it came from originally, but is this 21 days thing of uh, <laughs> you need to do something for 21 days for it to become a habit. Where does that fall in the research as far as being useful or valid? Is it, is it, is it anywhere? Not true. Not true. We hear it all over. And more recently, it's 66 days. And this is in bloggers' headlines. It's in training programs. It's in best-selling books. But if you look at the research, if you push and actually look at the research they're citing, it comes from a 2009 study done by Lolly and colleagues. And that research absolutely does not show that repetition creates the habit. It does suggest that there's a correlation between repetition and strength of habit, but there's no evidence in that study or any study that I can find that repetition creates the habit. So in some ways we're being misled, sometimes probably not deliberately, but people that haven't really read the research carefully to think that repetition is the key. And in my work, what I found is it's emotions that wires in habits, it's not repetition. Really what you're designing for, whether you're creating habits in yourself or others, is that people connect a positive emotion with this behavior that you want to become a habit. And so in my book, Tiny Habits, I have a whole chapter on this, and I've made it very, very clear with the chapter title. It's Emotions Create Habits. Yeah, that's really a key distinction. So let's dive in on that because there's a different approach then 
if you're moving away from, I'm just trying to create repetition to mm-hmm. where I'm really wanting to dive in on emotion. When thinking yeah. about emotion, what is different about that approach? Well, if someone believes that repetition is the key to creating habits, they may look at the process of behavior change as something you need to endure, something that's hard, something that you have to slog through for 66 days or 21 days or 30 days. And because of that, they could very well procrastinate like, oh, I just I don't have the energy or I don't have the wherewithal to just keep doing this over and over and over. So number one, it just gets people to procrastinate change. Two, it frames change as something that you have to endure. And that's not the case in my work in coaching over 40,000 people personally, personally in creating habits, you change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. And change can be this kind of a delightful, fun, interesting process, not something that you have to endure. And then Dave, it's really frustrating for me. So I'm, I'm reading some prominent training program and they're like, we're going to get you to repeat this 66 days and then the habit will form like it were magic. Well, guess what? That's not going to happen. If somebody is doing the behavior and they're not experiencing, connecting a positive emotion with that behavior, it won't turn into a habit even after 66 days. Consider if you have a son or a daughter and you've said, hey, pick up your room, pick up your room. You've gotten them to pick up their socks off the floor for 66 days or 100 days or maybe two years. Does that become a habit? Probably not. It's not like they pick up the socks and feel successful. They're just doing it in response to nagging. And then there are other behaviors that we do. Oh, let's say using a new app. So there's one of my students is the CEO of a company called Notion. And Notion is a really good productivity app. And if you use that and feel successful, that habit of using Notion can wire in very, very quickly. The most extreme example of this would be, let's say you give your daughter or your son uh, his or her first mobile phone. How long does that take to wire in as a habit? Bam, like instant. It's an instant habit because it helps them feel so successful uh, that the the emotion they have in using the phone leads to them carrying it around. So when you just look at everyday experience, there are some habits that wire in very, very quickly and notice those habits wiring quickly because there is this positive emotion that is connected with the behavior and there are some behaviors you do over and over and over that will never wire in as habits. Either they're painful or it's drudgery or it makes you look bad. And in those cases, it's not any number of days. It's just that kind of behavior won't become a habit readily. So one of the big pieces of my work is to help people think clearly about what actually forms the habit. Because if you're just looking at repetition, you're looking at the wrong thing and you're designing for the wrong thing. But then if it's emotion, let's say you want your employee to create a habit of going outside and during lunch, refresh, get out to nature, walk around during lunch. The way you help that person create the habit is to help them feel successful. You're designing for the emotions to help wire that behavior into the brain and become a habit. And a habit is a behavior you do quite automatically. So a habit is a special type of behavior that you do quite automatically. And the automaticity gets wired in because of emotions that we associate with that behavior. It is so different than how we have, most of us been taught about this. I had a conversation with a friend just this morning where we got on the line and he said, I am fighting myself on getting better at this thing. And 
I'm thinking about that statement from him, and then I'm thinking about the line in your book that I highlighted, which is, you write in Tiny Habits, if there's one concept from my book I hope you embrace, it's this. People change best by feeling good, not feeling bad. And that is just totally different from, I think, what we think about when we create whatever the New Year's resolution is or the new habit is we feel like it has to be a slog, it has to be difficult, it has to be painful even, and the no pain, no gain, right? We've heard that before. And really, the feeling of success, what I hear you saying is the feeling of success is what wires in the habit, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's different emotions that can help make behaviors become automatic, but in tiny habits and in my work, it's the feeling of success because this maps to so many things, whether you're trying to help people create a habit of using a new product or doing a new practice at work and so on help them feel successful. So David comes down if you're if you're interested in lasting change or behavior change that endures or habits that continue I'm using all of those as synonyms it really comes down to two things. Number 1 and I'm going to talk about it in in the work context. Let's say you're helping uh, people on your team create a, a habit of expressing gratitude let's say. Number 1 help people do what they already want to do. Okay, so if somebody doesn't want to express gratitude, it's going to be really hard to make that a habit. So you have to align what you want with something they already want to do. And if that's not the case, it's an uphill battle and they won't engage with it. It won't become lasting change. Number two is help people feel successful. And I call those maxims. Maxim number one, maxim number two. Those are the keys that unlock the door to lasting change. And you can apply it to yourself when you're looking at changing your own behavior is help yourself do what you already want to do. Hey, if you don't want to go walk on the treadmill for an hour a day, don't pick that. Pick a different type of exercise that you want to do. And number two, help yourself feel successful. And let me give a specific example. I was working with some of my tiny habits coaches in training this morning and they asked this question. Um, They asked the question about daily tracking. What is the role of tracking your new habit daily? And I said, well, it's not part of the tiny habits method. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I actually do not recommend it. And here's why. If you are tracking a habit that you're supposed to be doing daily, and let's say you're doing it on a wall calendar, all of those blank spots where you did not do the habit, those are all, are they helping you feel successful? No, it's evidence that you're not succeeding. So traditional tracking tends not to help people feel successful. Instead, it just shows how unsuccessful they're being, which can be discouraging. So yes, you can create a habit without actually tracking it daily. And so there's just so many things in the world of how people think about habits and behavior that are either wrong or misleading or not helpful. But if you come back to the two maxims, when you look at something like setting goals, accountability partners, tracking, and so on. If it does these two things, if it helps you do what you already want to do, and if it helps you feel successful, it's a good thing. If it doesn't do those two things, then don't do it. Yeah. And that first one of helping you to do something you already want to do, you have this beautiful analogy use of the garden concept. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if maybe you could share that with us, because that that for me really struck me as well in your work of there's a season for everything. Tell, tell me more about that. The best way to think about your habits is like a garden. 
And so you have a variety of flowers and trees and plants and so on. And each flower plant is a different habit. And you can either design the garden to get what you want, or you can let it go wild and have weeds. Weeds are like unwanted habits, bad habits. And the garden analogy works really, really well in so many ways. And I'm going to pick up on your question and apply it. If there is, as you're designing your garden, don't put plants in there you don't like or you don't want. Pick ones you do want. And those will take root more readily and be something that makes you happy and serves you. But when a habit no longer serves you very well, then take it out and maybe put something else in its place. There was a time when I had a habit of eating an orange for lunch every day. This was a few years ago. And for some reason, I thought eating an orange every day was a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I had a few orange trees in my front yard and they had tons of oranges. So I would go get an orange every day and eat it. And that felt good to me for a while. And then one day I was like, you know what? I don't really think this is serving me so well. So I stopped and I, I uprooted that habit from my life and I moved on. And that's how we should look at our habits. Just because at one point in your life, you said, oh, I'm going to eat an orange every day, or I'm going to walk for an hour every day, or I'm going to drink you know, 64 ounces of water every day. If that no longer serves you, let it go. And then you actually free up space to bring other habits into your life that are more appropriate for that season of your life. That's so helpful because I think sometimes we get into these, I know I've gotten this like, okay, I'm going to set this habit to work out every day or whatever it is. And then there's that feeling of, okay, I need to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> whatever. No, that's one is. of those, that's one of those assumptions or myths that people have is, you know, because I said this on January 1st and this was my resolution, I got to stick with it or I'm somehow a weak person. No, you're a strong person by understanding that you iterate, you evolve, you adapt to what life throws at you and that the ability to let things go and the ability to welcome new habits into your life, that's the strength. You're doing what a gardener would do, which is you're going out, you're pruning, you're pulling the things out when the season is done. Mm -hmm. It's such a beautiful mm -hmm. analogy in so many ways. So to put a framework around this, one of the other pieces that's so helpful in the book is just thinking about, now thinking about this through the lens of those two maxims, and also, how do I have success doing this? You have this beautiful three-step process for creating a habit. And I'm wondering yeah. if you could share that with us. So, you know, I'm, one of the things I hope for is that folks would come away from this conversation thinking about, okay, how could I perhaps start to change my behavior using yeah. these three steps? Would you tell us a bit about that? I will. And everybody, I got great news for you. Creating habits is way easier than most people think. And it's faster and it can even be fun. So in the tiny habits method, you can break it down into these three steps. They're really three hacks. And that's what I brought together in 2010 as I was playing around with my own behavior and stumbled across on this new way of doing things. And you can think of it as A, B, C. I didn't intend it to be ABC. That's a little cute for my <laughs> taste, but it does boil down to be ABC. Let's start with the B, okay, in the middle. B is the new behavior that you want to turn into a habit. So let's say you want to read more. And that's a great habit, reading every day. So instead of leaving it super abstract, like read more, you'd make it specific. 
But instead of saying, I'm going to read an hour a day and the tiny habits method, you boil it down to be the simplest version of reading. And in this case, you might say, I'm going to read one sentence a day. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but again, tiny habits is different and you're hacking it. You're making it so simple. So you're going to read one sentence a day. Great. So that's B. That's the behavior you want to become a habit. Then let's go back to A. A is the anchor. And by anchor, I mean it's some routine in your life that you tie the new habit to. So let's suppose that every afternoon you sit down for tea. And you already do that. So that can be your anchor or your reminder to read one sentence. So then in the tiny habits way, the habit becomes after I sit down for afternoon tea, I will read one sentence. And I'll say that again. So that we call that a recipe in tiny habits. You're creating this recipe, which has these two components, anchor, which is the A, behavior, which is the new habit. So after I sit down for tea, I will read one sentence in a book. And so that's, boom, you've got your game plan. You've made it very, very simple. And there's reasons you make it so simple. And then you know where it fits in your life. Just like, where does this new plant fit? You look around for a space where it fits naturally. And then the C is celebration. This is where emotion comes in. As you open the book and read a sentence, you hack your emotion with a technique we call celebration. And I explained this, of course, in... Tiny Habits book. I explain it in my free five-day program. You cause yourself to feel successful, which helps wire that habit into your brain. It helps you remember when you sit down for tea, your brain will go, hey, what about the book? Open it up, read a sentence, because I know I'm going to feel a positive emotion. I'm going to feel successful. So those are the three things. ABC, anchor, behavior, celebration. You're hacking What reminds you, you hack that by using an existing routine to remind you, not a post-it, not an alarm. You anchor it to something you already do. The behavior, you make it super tiny, so it doesn't require much time or much motivation to do. And then C, you don't leave the emotional response to chance. You deliberately cause yourself to feel a positive emotion. So those three hacks together comprise the tiny habits method. The thing that I hear with especially the new behavior is you're you're lowering the bar as low as it can go so that you can clear it really easily. So you do feel success. Am I am I hearing you right on that? Yes. You lower the bar and still has to have some meaning to it, right? If it's like after I start for tea, I just look at the book, that might not be that's pretty simple, but it (laughs) may not be meaningful at all. So it needs to have some meaning associated with it. Now, a lot of people think that you start with one sentence and the next day you do two sentences and three. No, that's not the case. You set the bar low. And even on day one, if you want to read a paragraph or a whole chapter, bam, go for it. But you don't raise the bar. You set the bar low and you can totally clear it on day one or day three or you know day 100. But you, you don't have to. Even on your busiest days, your hardest of days, Boom, open the book, read one sentence, say, good for me, I did it, and move on. So one way the method is really, really different is you don't raise the bar over time. You set the bar low, it always stays low. But what happens naturally, just like plants growing, you will naturally do more. You'll naturally read more. And you will find other opportunities in your life to read. So the habit will grow, but you don't force it. And you don't raise the bar. Because if you raise the bar then there's going to be a point where 
It's no longer a tiny, it's no longer simple, and you will no longer be reliable with the habit. So what you're doing with tiny habits is you're really designing so you're just 100% reliable in doing that behavior, at least the tiny version of it. And when you want to do more and can do more, boom, knock yourself out. Let me give an example with push-ups. So I, I have, <laughs> and this is in the book, I am public on this. It was a little embarrassing. So I'm in my 50s now and I wanted to do strength training. And so that tiny habit recipe that finally came together for me, I would not have expected this, is after I pee, I will do two push-ups. Okay. Ah. So not 20 and not even 10, two. Now, these days, I've done thousands and thousands of push-ups. I will generally do eight or 12 or sometimes 20 push-ups at a time, but I don't have to. I might be really busy, so I only do two. I might be really tired. I only do two. I might be just not in the mood. Fine. Just do two and move on with your life. And so by setting the bar low and keeping it low, and this is what's counterintuitive, you are helping yourself feel successful and you're keeping the habit alive. Just like a little drop of water on a plant will keep the plant alive. If you and I had had this conversation 15 years ago, I would have, I would have been very polite, but I would have thought to myself like, that is just really weird. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I didn't expect this. So I started you know, hacking in 2010, my own behavior. And yeah. I grew up in a culture of like high performance. I mean, I, I come from the culture of perfection and improve every day. And, yeah, yeah. And always be looking for ways you can be a better, more impactful person. And I grew up with a really, really strong sense of, you know, set goals and always improve and always get better. And Dave, I have to say that was detrimental on my mental health. It didn't really kick in until I was at university. And I had a hard time letting go of that. But once I did, I started becoming a much happier person. And it didn't mean I achieved less. I actually learned to achieve more, oddly enough, by reducing the high expectations I had of myself. And I know it's going to sound crazy to people, but now any sort of challenge, any aspiration, any outcome, I know I can tackle because I have a system for it. I don't have to be perfect at doing it. I mean, that's part of the method is it's practice and revise. So I don't shy away from challenges. I know I can tackle big things. I have a method for it. I know how to create habits to get there. And the fact that it's called tiny doesn't mean that the impact's tiny. The impact's really, really big. And it gives you a confidence that you can step up to any challenge that comes your way and you can do it systematically and reliably. And I so appreciate you saying that because so many of us who are part of our listening community, myself, you know, we think of ourselves as high achievers. We've had a lot of success in our work. The message has been keep raising the bar, keep doing mm -hmm. better. You mm -hmm. did this this year, 10% more next year, right? And what changed my mind on this was starting teaching as a, I was a Dale Carnegie instructor for 15 years mm. and we would teach <laughs> behavior change on human relations. And Carnegie was just brilliant 100 years ago and yeah. how he designed this. Yeah. He, we would do class every week and he'd say, you know, between now and next week, pick one behavior and one person you want to try it with, just one. Mm -hmm. And I used to think like, boy, even as an instructor, like that's kind of wired. Like, why don't we have people do it in every interaction? But we would give the direction, one behavior, one time. And then we'd come back a week later and the people who had applied it in one place, one very specific place, not only did they have generally a good result there, but inevitably 
they were the people that all of a sudden found opportunities to apply it in other areas yeah. of their life. And the people who tried to do it everywhere or like be a good listener in every single interaction would almost always crash and burn. And it would take a few weeks kind of for us to get them back into a place of like, okay, I'm willing to try this again. And yeah. I just, I realized the power of small behaviors and it, it was just night and day and it, it changed my mind over time. Wow. I love that example, but there's the pattern. And uh, it's one of the patterns I've seen week after week since 2011 in the tiny habits program is yeah, even though people are designing these tiny habit recipes into their life and they're tiny, it has ripple effects. Yes, people can do more when they want to. You can do more push-ups, you can read more and so on, and people naturally will. But also it influences other behaviors. The vast majority of people who do the five-day program of tiny habits report that they started changing other behaviors in their life within five days. So it's not part of the program to look around for other changes, but most people report, wow, I started changing in other ways. And almost 20% report they changed something big within those five days. So in other words, by feeling successful, by, by focusing on something tiny and feeling successful, it seems to unlock this almost 20% of people within five days to make big changes or take big leaps in their life they otherwise wouldn't have done. So there is, and that's why the first sentence of my book is tiny is mighty. If you approach it in the right way, yes, you can get yourself to do it reliably, but it, and this is, it, it, it seems to open the door to doing the more in other contexts. And also, and Dave, what, what I think's going on here, and I haven't, run experiments on the actual mechanism. In other words, what's the psychological process? But it seems to be this. As you do a behavior and feel successful, the fear of doing more or doing a related behavior goes away. And so fear is a demotivator. And if I had a visual, I'd be mapping it out according to my behavior model. But as fear diminishes, that means hope can increase. In other words, uh, hope is a motivator. So as your motivation goes up, you can do harder behaviors. So in other words, the way to increase your motivation is to reduce fear. And that fear goes away when you feel successful. And the crazy, <laughs> fun, inspiring, I want to call it magical, but I'm a scientist, so I can't call it magical. Just this <laughs> remarkable thing is that feeling of success can be on something that's super tiny. Oh, I read a sentence. I did two push-ups. I poured a glass of water. And it doesn't seem to matter the size of the success to get the impact. It is really fascinating. And the other part that I think is really incredible of how this is designed is you account for the natural motivation waves that we all feel. And one of the points you make in the book is often when people decide to change their behavior at the start, they're in a really high state of motivation, but they don't really, they don't really account for the fact that Three weeks later, they're not going to feel that same level of motivation that they do yeah. at the moment they're, they're making that commitment. Yes, that's a super important point. One of the systematic mistakes that we often make in our lives is when we're sitting down and we're saying, oh, I, I want to improve my life or change, we're in a high state of motivation. And I call it a motivation wave. The wave is at its highest point. And we're terrible in general at anticipating what's that wave going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day or a week from now and so on. Well, the wave is going to go down. The wave goes up and down for 
any given domain of our life. At some time, at some moments, relationships are more important than productivity. And other times, gathering with family is more important than finishing a project. Okay. So, you know, if we were motivated to do everything all the time, that would be a massive problem. So most of us have these motivation waves. And when the motivation is high, we can do hard things. When the motivation drops, you can no longer do hard things. And so that's one reason that hacking the habit, making it so small that it doesn't require much motivation at all. It doesn't require much motivation to read a sentence or fill a glass with water or do two push-ups, which means you can do it even at your lowest points of motivation. Mm-hmm. And then when your motivation's higher, then do more, read more, do more push-ups. So this tiny habit system is designed to account for just the reality. It's a reality that our motivation is not always at the, at the highest point. It fluctuates. And we're wired for that to be the case. Our motivation is going to go up and down. But I think people can tap into, what is it that you want? What do you aspire to? And pick things. The method is called tiny habits. It doesn't mean you focus on tiny things. You reach for the stars, but you operationalize it by breaking it down to behaviors and making it tiny. The more skilled you get at creating habits, the more you can do and the faster you'll progress. So this thing of changing our behavior, creating habits is a skill. And so just like with any other thing, like playing a musical instrument or speaking French or driving a car or whatever, maybe parallel parking really trips some people up, but not others. That is, I think, the right way to look at habits, creating habits. It's a skill, really a set of skills, just like driving is a set of skills. And the beauty of it being a skill is it's absolutely learnable. So, um, So two invitations I have for everyone coming out of this. One is you mentioned your course a couple of times. It is free for people to access and it walks you through this step by step. For folks who want to dive in on that, BJ, what's the best place for them to go? Tinyhabits.com. And if you want to go right to the page, it's tinyhabits.com slash join. And it's a five-day program and there's a human coach that will work with you. Sometimes it'll be me, but it's mostly coaches I've trained. So you get a real human being. Often you'll see a video of her or him saying, hey, it's Teresa and I'm your tiny habits coach and here's how we're going to be working together. And the total time investment over the week is 40 minutes. So it's the setup's like 15 minutes where you figure out what habits you're going to create and so on. And then it's just five minutes a day for five days. So that's pretty straightforward. And just, yeah, join the tiny habits five day program. That's the program that I launched in 2011 and iterated and tried to make it better and better. And it's the fastest, easiest way to learn the skills of change. Five minutes a day. We can all do that, right? Uh, speaking of tiny, a nice, nice little bar we can clear. And then <laughs> the other bar that I'd ask folks to clear is if this has been useful to you, there's a ton more in the book, BJ. I mean, we're just scratching the surface here. The book is a New York Times bestseller, Tiny Habits. I absolutely recommend it. It's a, it's a wonderful place for you to start. If you, like me, are wanting to continue to find new ways to really change your behavior and also are ready to learn and to maybe change some of your thinking on some of the things a lot of us have been taught about habits. BJ Fogg is the author of Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. BJ, thank you so much for your work. Dave, thank you for inviting me to share.
If this conversation with BJ was useful to you, several related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is episode 232, How to Manage Your Inner Critic with Tara Moore. On that episode, Tara and I talked about that voice that we all hear in our heads, at least most of us here, that says, you're not good enough. You're not going to have success if you do this. You're not prepared. You haven't had enough qualifications. That even when we have, we hear that voice, so many of us, that holds us back. In episode 232, Tara challenged us to listen, yes, listen, and actually understand that voice better. And once we do, we're able to then move beyond what that voice is saying. It's a wonderful compliment to this conversation. Episode 232, a great listen for you if you'd like to dive in more. I'd also recommend episode 337, Six Tactics for Extraordinary Performance. My guest on that episode was Morton Hansen. Morton and I talked about his research out at Berkeley on looking at performance change in the workplace. He has researched thousands of people and looked at what is it that makes the difference on performance change. Guess what one of the six tactics are? Five minutes or less when you're trying to have a new behavior. Five minutes or less. That's one of the things that the research clearly showed. The same message from BJ. BJ calls it tiny habits, right? But the message is the same. Same thing we heard from James Clear and Atomic Habits as well, too. Same message I give to our Academy members. They are tired of hearing me say, set the bar lower. But the key is when we set that bar to something we can clear and we can have success, and we start to think differently about it, and we create momentum, then all of a sudden we are creating behavior change, which is what we all want. Episode 337 will help you to reinforce that. And then finally, I'd also recommend episode 435, Tie Leadership Development to Business Results with Mark Allen. In that conversation, Mark and I talked about the fallacy that a lot of organizations tend to fall into, which is it's enough just to share knowledge and information and to do training courses and to bring in speakers. And all those are wonderful things, but it's only part of the process of leadership development. So much of leadership development is about behavior change. It's actually taking action. And he made that invitation in that episode when spending the time to develop leadership in your organization and creating opportunities for people to grow. It's less about the knowledge and it's more about action. Great compliment again to this conversation today. That's episode 435. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you'll take a moment to set up your free membership, that's going to give you access to the entire library that's been aired since 2011. We're going into our 10th year here of airing the show. It's been a tremendous journey for me, and more importantly, it's been a wonderful journey for so many of our listeners. And one of the resources that I've put together for our free members is the ability to be able to search the entire library by topic. So if you'll set up your free membership, you can go in, search by topic. It's also going to give you access to all of the free audio courses inside the website, my weekly leadership guide that comes on Wednesdays, and now included in free membership, also my interview notes. And so for selected interviews, including this one, I'm going to be sharing the notes of the questions I've asked, some of the research I've done, the quotes that I've pulled from guest books, and all of that is in BJ's notes as well. So you can find that online. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com to set up your free membership and you'll be off and running. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Stephanie Johnson to the show. She is the author of the book, Inclusify, and she is going to be teaching us about some of the research and her findings on how we can be more inclusive in our work as leaders. Join me for that conversation next Monday. Have a great week and see you then.